iced tea. Get to the point. Oh, the rip compels me. Old fashioned, I'm calling Bon Jovi every metal, you know. Bloody hell, what's, they were adding everybody in under the category of every metal. Black Sabbath wasn't a band that you got a guy from Newcastle, a guy from London, and a guy from Birmingham who was constructed. We were four local guys that went, I went to the same school as Tony, and we conquered the fucking world. Wait till the end, wait until it's finished, boy, you'll love it. It wasn't my job to try to save this band, it seemed more like it was their job to try to destroy it. Stand up something more too, did you? Ozzy fucking Osborne. Sabbath, please, Sabbath. We've made it, the one you've all been waiting for, right? You fear me. <laughs> the most maligned and ultimately hidden album of the entire Sabbath catalog. That'll be the order of today. Forbidden, 1995. Let's get right into it. Oh, and you're very welcome here. As always, for those who don't know what they just clicked into, you're listening to Sabbath Bloody Podcast, a sabography for the masses. And a safe place for all fucking Sabbath worship, even the forbidden one. <laughs> I sincerely hope that there's people tuning in today that absolutely adore this album. And if you do, fucking write in and tell me about it, because I kind of like it too. It is the consensus out there that this is the weakest Black Sabbath offering ever created. It's been said multiple times that it was just made to fulfill contracts with IRS, and it's nothing more. Each one of the band members involved more or less disowns it. That was until recently when... Iomi announced that he was going to dive in and remix the thing, but unfortunately, that is yet to surface as I'm recording this podcast. During the making, though, at least all the articles that I've read, it was all the bands renewing themselves. They're trying new things. They're so excited about it. And then in hindsight, it was everybody's like, oh, that was fucking dog shit. We didn't even give a fuck about it. <laughs> so in turn, the album is kind of just buried in all the Sabbath lit. There's a whole middle ground of what actually happened that hasn't been revealed, so we'll try to straighten out shit as much as we can, unpack the process that was forbidden. Because I gotta say, this isn't as bottom of the barrel as people make it out to be, for me at least. I fucking like forbidden. Let's pick up from the last installment here first, because we had Cross Purposes, which was a solid album too that I feel is kind of underappreciated. But the whole reception of it at the time, it not doing very well. It failed to keep Geezer on board, or Bobby Rondinelli for that matter. So Iomi, Martin, and Nichols were the last ones left standing, and they decided, quite quickly I might add, let's get back to fucking 1991, back when things were nice and cozy for Sabbath. <laughs> Re-enter Cozy Powell and Neil Murray. The five lads fucking tear line up again. The five of them went into Bluestone Farm in Wales. It's like they fucking live in Wales at this point, isn't it? Must be cheap to fucking record there. They started jamming again. Of course, the riffs came easy, as always. By all accounts that I've read, the rehearsals went really well, and the lads were happy to be back together. After all those fucking switchbacks and their progression, dehumanizer and cross-purposes. However, apparently, the records company hold was a little stronger at this point because of the kind of lack of return that they got on cross-purposes. Because in all honesty, too, Sabbath stuff hadn't really hit it big on IRS as far as how big they were in the early 80s even. And the Dehumanizer album was only partially an IRS property due to Dio's contracts and all that shit, so they didn't even reap the full rewards of that reunion, which did all right. However, they still had a couple more offerings on their contract with IRS, so the label started kind of cranking up the heat on this one. The last episode, we touched on the whole Nativity and Black tribute album thing, where the label wouldn't allow Iomi to 
play on the Halford Sabbath collaboration that appeared there, the Bullring Brummies. That studio cut of The Wizard created some refs between Iomi and Geezer, stalling out the inevitable Sabbath original reunion that everybody was craving. Although, what did happen is Geezer went back to Aussie camp, so still all intertwined. Keep that in mind. I mean, the fact is, going into this record, people were still just talking about the reunion being the next thing. They were just ignoring what they were actually creating here with Cozy and Martin. On top of that, IRS was pushing Sabbath, the Sabbath that they had control over anyway, to making more contemporary metal albums next. And so their go-to thing as a record label would usually be, they wanted to bring more of an urban flavor into the metal. And that was all the rage there with fucking Rage Against the Machine, of course, and shit, fucking Faith No More. That alternative rock scene, that's what IRS knew would sell. So basically, the whole dynamic quickly forced the newly reunited tier lineup that had been jamming into the studio. Iomi, of course, was tired of IRS's hot and cold treatment of him. It seems at the time he just said, fine, Zero Fox, you guys decide what you want to do with the production. I'll bring in my lads. We got these songs that we're jamming. We'll fucking kill this contract off for good with these tracks. And the demos are out there too, the ones that was just from them jamming in Wales, I guess. They're very raw, but there's an energy there that's different. And People always drive me towards that when they talk about Forbidden. They say, listen to those demos first. You'll see the fucking true power of these songs. But you know what, lads? I like the actual album. So IRS was hell-bent on adding some street cred to the Sabbath asset. So they contacted the OG, original gangster, Ice-T, with hopes that he would help with the production, as well as some guidelines for the songs. So... I see that on paper and I say, yeah, this is fucking doomed to fail. Especially fucking the Martin lineup. <laughs> like those old AOR cats, Cozy, Murray, and Martin. I love them, but you can't get more vanilla than those guys. Bless their cotton socks. Here's a quote from Murray talking about this iced tea deal. Neil Murray kind of lays out the whole thing. The perception of how the f- album Forbidden was made was slightly different from what actually happened. Certainly, the record company were pushing us to be more current and more relevant. In the late 80s, when Cozy was almost joint leader of the band with Iomi, there was a leaning towards melodic sensibilities and 80s-type sounds. And when Cozy and myself rejoined in 1994, and discussions were going on about who should produce the album, the original idea was Ice-T was going to produce. In actual fact, he delegated it to the guitarist from his metal band, Body Count, Ernie C., Okay, let's pause on the Murray quote there for a second and introduce this Ernie C. cat that we're hearing about. I'm going to play a clip here from a podcast interview that Ernie did with the great Danko Jones. I urge you to listen to Danko Jones' podcast, the Canadian fucking rock legend. He did a great interview, very loose, very fun with Ernie C. I'll let him, in his own voice here, kind of talk about the experience or how he saw the whole thing going down. He's very positive about the whole Forbidden album, so... I wanted to at least throw this in before I read the rest of Murray's quote because he gets a little negative about it. But here's Ernie C. first. You know, on Ice's first record, he sampled War Pigs. Mm-hmm. And Tony got a whiff of it. And he started listening to it. And he said he liked it. And then he like heard that I produced those first records that we did. And he just gave us a call, gave the office a call. And then at that time, Warner Brothers wanted me to, to produce some records. They wanted me to do produce. Tom Petty and Terrence Trent Darby and I was just like you know I I'm trying to do my band you know wow. <laughs> and so I said then they said Black Sabbath I'm like oh, let me check this one out so we were in England and uh, Tony came to our 
our hotel. And what was what was so funny was a band called Take That was at staying at the hotel. It was girls all around for blocks and blocks. They had barricades out there. And Tony came in and said, "Boy, you guys are really popular." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we're like, we don't even know what's going on here. We we can walk in and out of here. He thought, <laughs> there's a bunch of little white girls around screaming. We're like, wow, like, yeah. Nice. Tony Tony's like, whoa. <laughs> That's amazing. So anyway, he said, I, I would like you to do the record. I'm like, really? Okay, cool. And I I showed up and Cozy Powell was there and you know it was it was cool. You know, wow. It was a good experience, you know. It was it was a rock and roll experience that you can just say, well, I did a Black Sabbath record and I'm done. It made me say, yeah, I really don't want to produce bands that are already established. It's good to produce young people that listen. I see. And, right. and when, you, when you're so set in your ways, that was the time that Nirvana was out. And I told them, you know, I'm going to dry the sound up a little bit. So Nirvana was dry. That's what made Nirvana sound. They were in your face. Mm-hmm. The record was, you know, like you got your ear against in some earphones because it's so dry in your face. It's not the big tunnel. Because I was the Van Halen stuff. You got one guitar in one ear and and you know, it's, it's big and large but if they would have dried it up it'd be i don't think they would have been that popular maybe you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's, it's something to that era that lends to you almost seeing them on a stage and you're back in the seats you know and then then nirvana came along and made it more personal like you're sitting down with someone the big the big wet sound is the rock star the big rock star <clears throat> on stage like queen you can't touch them you know what i mean yeah. we're we're fragile and you know we're not hanging out with you because we don't Look like we're going to hang out with you. But Nirvana made it more dried up in your face, and we're going to sit down and, you know, come to my garage and listen to my band. So there you go. So it at least sounds like Ernie was going for something different with the lads, enjoying his time, being close to the band, too, that he adored. He always tells this story, too, about Iommi lending him old boy as they were both lefty guitarists, and he stayed up all night playing fucking Iron Man on it like a fanboy. I love that stuff. I do the same thing, even though I'm right-handed. I'd <laughs> fucking try I get to touch Iomi's old boy. <laughs> also, the meeting with Tony sounds pretty funny too there. <laughs> sounds like Ernie C. enjoys being part of this whole fucking scene, the fucking circus around it. I can dig that. But he certainly was thrown to the wolves as far as producing a raw street-level Black Sabbath album with this reverb-soaked lineup coming in. So here's the rest of Neil Murray's recounting of the Forbidden Studio process. Let me read on here. It really didn't gel. It didn't work. Ernie C. brought his engineer over to England, and we laid down the basic backing tracks in a week up in Liverpool. Cozy was very unhappy with the sound. Ernie C. didn't really come up with any interesting or workable ideas as far as the production went. From that point on, it was sort of out of our hands. I know Tony Iommi redid a lot of stuff and went to various studios in L.A. and London and probably had more of an opportunity to change things around a bit to how he wanted them. But basically... It was a step too far and trying too hard to be up-to-date instead of classic. Okay, he was right to move away from something that was a little bit AOR-sounding. I mean, the sound of Tony Martin's voice compared to Ozzy is much more melodic and kind of conventional rock voice. It was extremely good, but the overall effect is that the music sounds a little bit nice. And that is not what Sabbath was supposed to be, really. So there you go. I kind of like the way he breaks it down. On to one more kind of blurb here. This one is from Cozy Powell, actually, because he doesn't sugarcoat it either. He was not happy with the way Forbidden turned out. Cozy says, They brought in a producer who's never really done a heavy rock album before. His ideas, whether good or bad, didn't feature on the drums, so my drum sound went out the window. I was very unhappy with the way the kit sounded and the way I, that I played. 
I couldn't really promote Forbidden and say that it was the greatest thing that I'd ever done when I didn't believe it. <laughs> On that glowing endorsement from Mr. Cozy Powell, let's push the needle in. Push the needle in. Okay, for this one, I was going to try to do a different approach to listening to it. I was really hoping that the remix would have been out by the time this episode hit, but it seems that has stalled out. So, Has anybody actually heard anything about that lately? I got all stoked around Christmas when Naomi was vlogging about it almost being done, but alas, we're well into fucking 2019 here, and I'm only presented with the old Ernie C mix. (laughs) My plan was to go right through the demos to what we got in 95 to the remix and can kind of compare shit to see what they really hated about it. But since I don't even play the tracks anymore on here, I just went straight to the fucking album as is, and that's all I listened to. I know. I've been told to listen to the fucking rough cuts as they have the true essence before Ernie and Ice came in and fucking did their shit. You know what, guys? I actually don't mind this album at all. The mix isn't as fucking atrocious as people make it out to be. I mean, it's bad, but I don't see a need for the big uproar with the album being fucking complete shit. It's an alright record. Sure, I mean, it's lower in the overall Sabs catalog, but it's not at an offensive level like people say it is. I'd take it over fucking Headless Cross and Seven Star, but for most people, Forbidden's the bottom of the list. And the burns are usually rooted in this opening track too, because for the first time ever, a guest vocalist, Ernie C's homeboy, Ice-T, on the illusion of power to open. It starts off very kind of melodic, Iomi part really, with some bass swells from Neil Murray. Kind of reminds me of Ugly Kid Joe, if you ever listened to them, their interludes on America's Least Wanted. I don't know if that's like a deep pull, but that's what comes to mind for me. I fucking love Ugly Kid Joe. <laughs> kind of snotty California metal stuff. I love that. But the melodic part at the beginning of Illusion of Power doesn't last long. It kicks into a great fucking doomy as fuck riff. Shit, it's almost fucking Power of the Riff territory right off the bat. And I'd give it a flag if the closer on this album didn't exist, but we'll come to that later. The Illusion of Power is widely regarded as Sabbath's attempt at breaking into the rap metal game. But listen to the fucking track, guys. It's not that at all. Like, Ice's part isn't fucking Run DMC rapping over Aerosmith or Bass, hello, can you go? It's not like that kind of situation here. He isn't rapping at all. The guy has a cool as shit voice. In fact, I would like to have just heard him do all the parts in it. Not all the parts on the album, but all the parts on Illusion of Power. The worst part is fucking Tony Martin's vocals on Illusion. He's trying for like a psycho mic from Suicidal Tendencies kind of snotty preacher punk vibe, if that makes sense to you. Hopefully the listeners out there share some of the same wheelhouse 90s references that I'm spitting out here. I know most of you guys that I talk to on Twitter and stuff are all about the classic metal, but you got to put Forbidden into fucking context of where music was at at the time. The Martin lyrics are... What is it that turns you on to the illusion of power? This thing that grabs you by the heart and makes you want to tear things down. There's no reason why I should need all of this power. But if you cross me now, I'm going to tear your whole world down. Illusion of power. Things I feel seem so unreal. So (laughs) all I wanted was a Pepsi and you wouldn't give it to me. Institution. I don't know why my, my head goes to fucking suicidal. Martin's fucking kind of hacky on this track, I have to say. There's a quote here from a 2011 interview that Martin did, speaking on the involvement of Ice-T on this album. Again, nobody told him what was up. They just told him, yeah, Ice-T's going to do some shit on this, but you record your tracks first. <laughs> it sounds like he thought like Ice-T was going to come in and retrack all his vocals or something. <laughs> he says, we were kind of steered into this 
rap Sabbath album idea. I was told that Ice-T was going to be doing it, and they couldn't or wouldn't tell me if he was going to be doing the whole thing or just one track. I still didn't know the answer to that when I was brought into the studio and started singing on the tracks. They said, we're going to take it and see what Ice-T wants to do with it. So it has this distinct ill feeling about it. You know, he doesn't mean ill in the fucking street way. I guess I should just pull up fucking Ice-T's part here, right? It's really nothing to get butthurt about either if you're a Sabbath fan. It's just fucking one little paragraph here. He says, fool, you're caught in the complex catacomb of your own inadequacies and pitiful weaknesses. Your soul secretes insecurity, so you live on the reflection side of the mirror. You're terrified of true power. You fear me. (laughs) It's short and sweet. I got no problems with it personally. And Cozy, all those little fucking cool double kick parts that he does behind Ice's part, it's menacing. It's a powerful spoken word part, not a goofy rap metal thing as most people claim. So just fucking chill, guys. (laughs) It's the first track on a new offering here. You got to get a grip. (laughs) as they tell you on track two. That's a segue right there. After Illusion of Power as the opener, we get a ripper of a track called Get a Grip, kicking the tempo up some too. Positioned very well in the sequencing, actually. Great raunchy martinera sabs, like we got all over Cross's purposes, psychophobia and the likes. I like it when they dial things up with Martin. He holds his own here. I mean, he's no Dio, of course, when it comes to spitting venom, and comparison to other sab singers always kills Martin, I know, but... He's better than Ozzy as far as the faster tempo things go. You gotta admit it, lads. Like, Ozzy was always fucking clunky, live especially on some of the faster ones, like Into the Void. Martin keeps up and he keeps in control, so respect to the cat in that manner. And Iomi, as per usual, he throws all kinds of badass riffs here. Some fucking solo wankery, too. A couple of face melting solos thrown in, which is funny because after the first track, didn't have any solo at all, but he makes up for it and drops two on you here. Get a Grip is a great energy track, and I don't know what the theme is of it, but I guess I read it as getting controlled by the media, another sort of TV crimes number maybe. That's where my head goes. There's also direct references to firearms, you know, getting a grip on the handle, I don't know. Right off the bat they said stuff about shooting your brother in the head. (laughs) It could be a gun control thing. I haven't really dove into the lyrics, and I don't really want to. Fucking title, like, Get a Grip. (laughs) I mean... Who knows what it could be about? Maybe milking cows? Like an Aerosmith in the 90s? That's my favorite form of Get a Grip there. I love that album. The main takeaway from Sabbath's Get a Grip, though, is, of course, Iomi's riffs. That's about it. So we'll just move on to the next track. Okay, so the first two tracks there, a doomy one and a fast one. This already has the makings of a classic Sabbath album to me. <laughs> Nothing's blown me away, but it's a great start. Some 90s shit gets thrown in here. I actually love this song. The main body of it is great, but for those not liking the 90s grungy sabs that we're getting into here, the intro-outro of Can't Get Close Enough is really bad integration of those Nirvana kind of flavors, you know? This track will undoubtedly benefit from a good fucking remix, as Tony's tone is so bad for the clean part. That out-of-tune kind of Cobain bullshit, it's not cool on a sabs record, man. I, I mean, the charming thing with Cobain was that we knew that he sucked at guitar, right? It was accepted that he probably couldn't even fucking tune the thing, but it was all feel and rawness, and his voice was the same way. Like, his gear was kind of crapping out on him, and he didn't give a fuck, he just went through it, and it worked. Adding to the experience, really, of Nirvana, especially with Grohl's fucking solid drums holding everything together. That can't be understated, how important he is to the band, and Novoselic, for that matter. 
I love me some Nirvana, don't get me wrong. However, with Iommi, we've already established that he's quite possibly the greatest fucking guitarist of all time, and he knows how to dial in a tone like no other. So to hear a choppy, kind of out of tune, crapped out bit from him, it reads as a gimmick. And that's what it was. It was a gimmick to kind of sound more like fucking heart-shaped box or something. And you really notice the dry production, too, on this one. The sparse drums from Cozy. Even when it gets going, nothing really sits right in the mix. Structure-wise, the lifts that Martin does vocally would probably be fucking out of this world if it was mixed properly. Even Iomi's riff, the like crunchy main one, it's pretty fucking badass. Kind of hitting that ancient warrior's eternal idol crunch at times. I love it. So track four then is Shaking Off the Chains, which is the most metal song on the album by far here. It has a killer, like, sped up Iron Man opening riff. That I love the chaotic bridge part too, where Martin's all like, this is not for the weak of mind, and it's all syncopated and fucking crazy. Like, it's very born again, kind of whacked out riffing like we got on Disturbing the Priest. You haven't done that for a long time, so I fucking love it. Then they hit their stride with like an Iron Maiden style noodly riff. Shaking off the chains is fucking metal as fuck. But again, it just kind of gets lost because the mix sucks. The production sucks. I mean, bring that shit up, fucking Ernie. <laughs> Dial a little sweetness in. Reverb can be your friend in small doses. It doesn't need to be fucking headless cross level, but it makes everything a little bit more tolerable, you know? It makes the difference of a song fucking fatiguing you sonically. We need some space in there, some atmosphere. This is fucking Black Sabbath, bro. I know he picked the lane by saying, let's keep it dry, in your face. But the riff is in your face enough here. It needs some warmth to help it pop, and Ernie just makes a potentially powerful part fucking annoying. Martin's lyrics on this one kind of nosedive too. Seems to be about kind of drug addiction, so he might be keeping it 90s there. Some kind of controlling substance anyway. Again, Martin isn't as focused on this record as he even was on Cross Purposes. The song's lyrics read as quite vague and generic, and he even said that it was like vocal vomit that he was going for here. Actually, let me play a little quote about his approach to these. Um, we're spreading our wings a little more, and um, this is a band that is not scared of experimenting with music. Um, we'll take every possible twist or turn and throw it in there, especially Tony's guitarists are so really spectacular, some of them. So it's a real challenge uh, to be able to work together in that way and um, just e expand, you know, as much as we can and keep the thing going. It's really good. I really enjoy the album and hopefully it's going to bring us into uh, the now thing and take us into the future thing. I mean, all I knew was that I wanted to get onto the human emotion thing in the same way that Paranoid did. And um, so I, I figured the best way to do that is just to sing from the heart and from the mind and just and go in there and do it. And it worked really well. The lyrics and the melodies worked together at the same time and they sort of worked with what the guys had already done. It was kind of scary in some respects that it never worked this way before. Um, we knew we wanted to make the album this kind of way, you know, raw and spontaneous, but I had no idea how it was going to work and so I just went in basically with the backing tracks that the guys had already fixed up, you know, verse, chorus, verse, whatever it might have been. And then uh, I just started singing and it all sort of came out, kind of, you know, verbal vomit, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Yeah, so on like cross purposes that had that great strand of fucking real life news events that you could actually, you know, dive into on repeat listens or when diving into words on paper like geeks like me do. <laughs> on this record, he just kind of fills in the blanks, it seems. I mean, it does get more personal actually on the ballads because of that approach. 
But on this one, I mean, let's look at these. Is life everything you want it to be? Does it give you everything that you need? Does it live up to your expectations? Are you ready for the celebrations? <laughs> like just da 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 da. It is vocal vomit. <laughs> I do love this bridge though. This is not for the weak of mind. Are you sure that you are my kind? Do you want to be a part of me? Are you sure that you can really see? Just the way he delivers it is fucking cool. Lyrics again are pretty vaguely boring. I do still read it as kind of drugs controlling someone by offering them escape. I don't know. Maybe I listen to fucking Master of Puppets too much and I'm giving too much credit to these words. Anyway, Mix and Martin aside, I love all the parts in this song. It just needs a little bit of polish, that's all. The way Iomi and Powell and Murray ramp up everything here, it's great. Musically, Forbidden has already fucking earned its keep, so fuck all you who fucking shit on it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm speaking too soon here, because the next track is our obligatory Tony Martin ballad. There has to be one, right? With those smooth pipes, you gotta use them. Well, the fact that they did this one is very contrary to the whole fucking idea that this album is just an experiment, because let's call a spade a spade. I Won't Cry For You is boring and safe as fuck. Maybe... There are nuances in there that I'm not picking up on based on my own personal preferences, but the song sounds generic to me and even fucking dated. I mean, there you go again. It showcases Tony Martin singing, but hell, I've heard it before plenty of times. I get that the guy is capable of smooth-ass, nice singing range, but there needs to be dynamics in the song, so you hear that part of it, and then he goes into what Sabbath is about, which is fucking rawness and, you know, delivering. I prefer what was done on cross, the Cross Purposes ballad, because at least that was the point he took to kind of do some weird lyrics things. You know, what was the song called? You know, the fucking refugee one. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. This one falls flat, though, just like No Stranger to Love. It ends up kind of sticking out as a tryhard. Maybe it isn't, but I don't like it. It adds dynamics to the whole fucking album, I guess, but it lacks dynamics in itself. You know what I mean, Supernauts? Anyway, let's get to the fucking parental advisory tracks. <laughs> Spice shit up a bit here. Because that's right, Forbidden actually got the sticker. And it wasn't from Ice-T, go figure. Guilty as hell. <laughs> you think I'd love it because it has a fucking F-bomb in it, but it's also a little too situated in that Headless Cross kind of vibe, that 80s throwback. Although he pulls more of an Aussie approach following the riff with his vocal melody. Like, I know it sounds weird, but Martin actually usually doesn't stay right on the riff like this. Like, not that I've noticed anyway. He's always kind of catching his own time signatures and his own melodies. Let's find the swear words in here, though. That's why we're here. <laughs> here are the lyrics. Step back and look at you and tell me that is what you want to be. You realize that what you're seeing is a replica of me. Inside, my world is pretty grim that I can't even survive in. I wouldn't try because I know you. Deep inside, you know you're guilty as hell. No, hell isn't the curse word that got them flight by the PMRC, just so you know. Later in the song, there's this little bridge part here. He says, if I was you, if I was you, I'd want to see, I'd want to see inside my head. I'd want to know if I was fucking dead. <laughs> I'd want to know what's going on. Someone tell me the truth. So that must have been fucking Ernie C's notes there. Yeah, homie, you got to say fuck. That's what they say on the streets. <laughs> Get you some of that parental advisory cred. Okay, now I'm just taking the piss. Guilty as hell for me is a skipper too. Very much sonically hitting that headless cross territory, so I don't like that. Which is, you know me, that's one of my least favorite Sabbath offerings. And speaking of throwback stuff that I'm not really into, the next one is a straight fucking bluesy seven star throwback called Sick and Tired. 
again, these aren't speaking to my taste, but still, I can appreciate the fact that they're there, and it's kind of cool that they're calling back to some different eras of Sabbath, right? Stuff that hasn't been popping up as much. I can respect the hell out of that. I mean, I referenced some similarities to Ozzy, Born Again, Ancient Warriors, Eternal Idol, Headless Cross, and now Seven Star. So... Part of this is probably because all I fucking listen to is Black Sabbath, so that's my only point of reference since doing this pod. Sure, I'll give you that, but this is the fabric of fucking Black Sabbath. It's all there, man. So Forbidden, Power of the Riff is in fucking Forbidden. (laughs) Let's check out the lyrics for a second on Sick and Tired. Got no time to be on the run. Got no holes in my shoes. You're the reason all my friends have gone, but I won't run from you. Even the words, man, it's fucking just sounds like Muddy Waters fucking cover or something, doesn't it? <laughs> so many promises and you broke them all. Oh, I'll forgive you, but I can't forget. <laughs> you know you're fake, but I just can't take it no more because I'm tired of it. Oh, I'm sick and tired. <laughs> you know what? As I think about it, it's actually great. It's like a fucking first person bluesy groove. I can dig that. And actually, the mix on this one is nice, too. Murray and Powell are right in that pocket, and the stripped-down kind of thing works for blues. Sick and Tired just fucking works in its simplicity. So it's a it's a good filler track, like some prime mid-album jam. Not filler. That's a bad way to say it. The next one, that's fucking filler. <laughs> in the eighth spot, the glorious eighth spot is fucking Rusty Angels. <laughs> No, Rusty Angels was actually the one that they play live a lot, too. It's got kind of that a cool sonic start that reminds me of Sins of the Father, that kind of high part, but it doesn't go anywhere. The song sucks, so that's why I'm skipping ahead to Forbidden, which is the title track, right? A very lush mix on this one in comparison to all the other dry stuff on the record. Again, kind of bringing back some of that Headless Cross flavor. There's a lot of Headless Cross flavor on fucking Forbidden. But not enough to turn me off. I like Forbidden way more than Headless Cross. Let's get that right. But there's still some of those fucking riff cock teases too. Like, this is going to rock and then boom into an AOR bullshit. There's more of that here. I think it might be Jeff's keys that are bringing that flavor more than anything. As he's nearly been inaudible on the rest of the album. And the tracks that he's up on, it just brings me back to Headless Cross. Every time, it sounds fucking dated as fuck. Let's check out the words here, though. These kind of feel autobiographical from the cat, don't they? Like, is this one about his relationship with Iomi? If I had to live again, I'd change everything. Because everything I do, you know I can't win. You say it isn't right, but you say it isn't wrong. How the hell am I supposed to please everyone? Tell me not to sing about Satan, so I sang about some Vikings. <laughs> no, that's not the lyrics, but it might as well be, right? <laughs> Tell me what it is I'm supposed to do. I ain't here for everybody, but I ain't here for you. You say it isn't right, you say it isn't wrong. I wish somebody could tell me just what I've done wrong. The best things in life aren't given. These things ain't for you and me. Every time you shout forbidden makes me wonder what you see. (laughs) You're forbidden to write lyrics about fucking angels and wings. (laughs) I'm definitely reading into this one. Since this is the title track, though, let's talk about the album art here, too. The presentation of the forbidden album. And this artwork is always pointed out as fucking bad by the people slagging the album. But why? I mean, it's in line with Dehumanizer, that fucking kind of cartoony Grim Reaper thing. It's almost the same character. I get it. It's not completely iconic, like Master of Reality typography or fucking the debut album. 
but it's much better than the pretentious shit that we got on cross purposes, right? Their whole fucking caricature deal too on the back is cool. Like a sketch of all the band members and all the people involved in the record too are piled in there. Like Ernie C's in there, fucking Ice T. The Grim Reaper has them all on like a platter and he's serving them up. <laughs> I'd love to get like a full guide of who's who in this caricature. I can pick out the band members, but enough about the artwork. We still have the album's closer to chat about here too. And shit son. As far as Tony Martin Fair goes, this one is fucking on point. Love this track. If you take anything from Forbidden, it should be Kiss of Death. A fucking great classic. Everything great about fucking Tony Martin era. Just epic. By far the highlight of Forbidden for me. Very similar to the tier epics that I really loved. I mean, fitting, as it was the same lads there at their apex of power, really. That just shows how fucking borderline of a Tony Martin fan I am, right? I'm picking a song from Forbidden as his best ever, but but I do, guys. I like Tony Martin, but I think I like him in a very different way than your typical cat fan. Like, I take Cross Purposes way over Headless Cross. So right there, that should tell you I'm not <laughs> fucking getting it, right? Well, go fuck yourself, because I have my own taste when it comes to this stuff. But that being said, Kiss of Death is very 80s, but like Nightwing, it jumps out as just like a great raw performance. In the same way that I consider Lonely is the Word to be Bill's swan song, Kiss of Death is Martin and Cozy's, and it's really driven home because it's the last song on the album. The fucking outro of this song is pure power of the riff territory. Power of the riff compels me. Fantastic. Fucking punchy drums on this one too. So it's stellar fucking send off to Cozy too. The song builds to levels of, well, well fuck it. You'll get what I'm talking about when you listen to the song, baby. It's borderline Dio epic. <laughs> Let's just read out the final lines of the Tony Martin era Sabbath here. This is actually where that riff is, too, if you want to find it, if you can't tell when you listen. Every lie that you tell gets you closer, closer to the edge of the cauldron and into the fire. Every life you destroy will return. It will come back and haunt you forever and ever. Nothing you can do will hurt me. I am indestructible. That part is fucking killer in the song. Martin nails this one. That I am indestructible. Whew, chills, man. I, I haven't gotten any chills from Tony Martin stuff until this one. And the final line, too. This is, no, this is no ordinary soul that you're destroying. Not just another life that drifts along with the sands of time. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. There's like a sound of a fucking pocket watch there. Eerie stuff at the end. Time has run out. And it doesn't fade. It just fucking cuts off. Of course... I'm listening to a digital copy here, so maybe on the vinyl it does fucking fade out proper. (laughs) Maybe the encoder just fucking cut it off. But given that it's the last appearance of this lineup, the clock kind of just stopping, that really works for me. It's fucking powerful shit. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There's one bonus track called Loser Gets All. According to the liner notes on the album, it was supposedly one of Iomi's favorite tracks to both perform and write. It was recorded during the Forbidden Sessions and performed live quite a bit, but it only appeared on the Japanese version of the album for some reason. And it doesn't send me. I would have kept it off too. It's like a heavy riff, but it doesn't go anywhere. So let's just leave this whole deep dive into Forbidden at the Kiss of Death, because that's a strong point. That's the takeaway from this album. And let's hit the road here with Forbidden, a fucking huge tour, tons of dates. So let's roll. It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. 
The first few dates on the Forbidden Cycle are kicking off in Denmark at the Asjörg Rock Festival. Who else is on this one here? The big ones, of course, are Fleetwood Mac and Saxon. <laughs> There's another gig, too, that ties right into it. A, another weird Scandinavian festival here in Sweden. Fleetwood Mac again, so they must be doing a little bit of a cycle. But yeah, here's the Sab set list from there, at least. They open with the Omen and the Gates of Hell intro. That's back in the set. And then it's kicking into Children of the Grave, Neon Knights, The Shining, The Wizard, War Pigs, Headless Cross, Rusty Angels. That's the one that they go with live, which I don't get, but we shall not speak of Rusty Angels. It sucks, <laughs> but that's what they do. Then when death calls, I won't cry for you. Man, like bad forbidden choices in the set. The Mob Rules, Black Sabbath, Paranoid, Iron Man, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. I do still love that encore of Iron Man and Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Anyway, after those first two festival gigs, they start the Forbidden Tour proper, bringing Motorhead back out with them for a U.S. swing, starting again in Connecticut, which they actually basically do the same cycle as Cross Purposes here, really, just a few more dates, all mid-sized venues. The U.S. swing really goes right through July. Pretty fucking solid schedule here, too. In which the lads actually have their first casualty here because of how solid it is. At the end of the U.S. Forbidden Tour, our man Cozy Powell decides he's going to leave, claiming exhaustion from a few nonstop years of recording and touring. But really, we know Cozy isn't into this fucking material at all. Let's be honest, the first opportunity had to fucking bounce he did it here's a quote from cozy on the tour for forbidden or at least as far as he got i backed off from the promotional tour because if you don't feel that way it's better to not do it at all we did a tour in america which was absolutely horrendous possibly the worst tour i've ever done it was badly booked the agent in america did it all last minute and we weren't drawing audiences that we wanted to the record company were not getting behind the band at all. It was a very difficult time. I also had a few personal problems. I needed to get off the road, which I couldn't do because the tour was eight months solid. So I said to the manager, I'd finish the U.S. tour and get out and you find a replacement drummer. So there you go. Sadly, this turns out to be Cozy's last kick behind the kit. For Sabbath, anyway. August 3rd, Universal City, California. So... With the European swing set to commence in less than a month, Sabs didn't have time to lament the loss of Cozy Powell. They went back to their drummer pool quickly and grabbed Bobby Rondinelli back, and he finished off the rest of the Forbidden Tour, commencing with the Rock at the Border Festival in Germany. And then that rolls into a big fucking full-on Euro tour. I won't list off all these dates because it's a huge one. Pretty much three months straight, slipping into Asia too at the end. So, actually, let's check out one of the set lists here. What do we have? Well, hey, let's just fucking jump to the last gig of 1995, shall we? The lads, like I said, make it over to Asia, and the set list they play during the Forbidden Tour is pretty stagnant because of how heavily it's booked. They don't throw any fucking curveballs in there. So in fucking Bangkok, December 14th, 1995, there were actually a couple more Japan gigs scheduled, but this Thailand gig... But this Bangkok gig here turned out to be the last of the Forbidden Tour. And hell, the last of fucking Tony Martin with Black Sabbath. So let's have a peek at the set here. Gates of Hell to open again. Trillum the Grave. Neon Knights. That's just the one-two punch off the top, and I like that, actually. Then into The Shining, The Wizard, Kiss of Death. Now in the set. They got that fucking right. 
Headless Cross with guitar solo, Rusty Angel's still there, When Death Calls with a bass solo into Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Okay, so Sabbath Bloody Sabbath moves up in the set instead of being the encore. Can't Get Close Enough, War Pigs with a drum solo, Mob Rules, Black Sabbath, Changes. Really? Fucking Changes? Tony Martin doing Changes? Nobody plays fucking Changes live. That's that's cool. That's a surprise to me anyway. Anyway, and then what's not a surprise is that they play Heaven and Hell, Iron Man, and Paranoid. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that's Tony Martin's last song in Sabbath Fucking Paranoid oh, That's too bad Too bad Kiss of Death wasn't there Because that would have just been too fucking dope, wouldn't it? So let's start this farewell party proper here With a quote from the Sabbath Bloody Podcast Bible That is Iron Man, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell with Black Sabbath By Tony Iommi Available at quality bookstores everywhere Or just listen to this goddamn podcast <laughs> I've pretty much read the whole fucking thing for you now <laughs> And I continue. Tony Martin had a fabulous voice, but we were always on him about his performance. He was very amateurish as far as overnight he went from working only local little venues in Birmingham to big stages everywhere. It was a very difficult position to be in, having to front a band that everybody knows from great performers like Ozzy and Ronnie. It was a bit much for him, and just like Ray Gillen, when he joined us, Tony got carried away with it. Tony in his book here, these whole fucking Martin... Slags. I don't know, man. Like, the next part is kind of cringeworthy here. I've said it in pretty much every fucking Martin era installment. The cat seems like he's pure class and ready to do what's best for Sabbath. So to call him out like this is, is kind of dickish. He's certainly not amateurish. He's very professional. But I also get where Iomi's coming from as far as Martin's stage presence not being good compared to the likes of Ozzy and Dio. Yeah. Here's the rest of Iomi's quote here about Martin. He kind of... F- calls him out on one particular event to say that he's kind of amateurish. We were playing in Europe somewhere and Tony had this portable video player. He was at a bar of a hotel showing people a video of him performing with us. Look, that's me up there. Very unprofessional. You just don't do stuff like that. Albert Chapman, who was managing him at the time, was livid. He said, put that fucking thing away. And then he suddenly started going under the name Tony Cat Martin. Where did the cat come from all of a sudden? He did these sort of things that were just off the wall. Well, maybe Iomi will listen to the podcast here and find out the true origin story of the cat moniker. But this is the end of the line for Tony Martin and the Sabs. His vocal work does make one last appearance. IRS releases a compilation album in 1996 to fulfill the rest of the band's contract, a comp entitled The Sabbath Stones, which features songs from as early as the Born Again album, which was not IRS. But it goes right through to Forbidden. I have no idea how they were able to take tracks from Born Again, Seven Star, and Eternal Idol. Oh, it does say here that it wasn't released outside of Europe, so maybe that explains the rights thing. Anyway, it's a fucking cool comp. I want to pick this up if I can find it somewhere. It really does showcase the non-Aussie stuff well. You get Headless Cross, Wind Death Calls, Devil and Daughter, The Sabbath Stones, Battle of Tear... Odin's Court, Bahala, so they have the whole fucking Viking trilogy on there. Awesome. TV Crimes is the only Dio track that sneaks into the set list here. It, then from Cross Purposes, it's Virtual Death and Evil Eye. And off of today's album, Forbidden is wrapped by Kiss of Death. Fucking, of course it is. Guilty as Hell. And then the bonus track that we discussed, that Loser Gets All, is put on there. Then, as mentioned, they tag on a few Vertigo release tracks at the very end, too. Disturbing the Priest, Heart Like a Wheel, and The Shining. That's really strange. 
And they're also the only ones that are out of fucking chronological order there, too. It seems like something's up with that. It must have been an afterthought just to fill some space on the record. Either way, it's cool that this comp is out there, albeit only in Europe. It's also very clear by kind of the ad hoc nature of this comp that they were, in fact, just trying to burn off that record contract. Much like Ozzy did with Jet Records and the whole double live album of Sabbath covers that he released, the fucking Speak of the Devil or whatever it was called. These compilations and stuff were a great way to just kind of get out of things. Whether or not Forbidden was also just serving that purpose, as Tony Martin seems to claim, that's up for debate. I think Forbidden was meant to be what it was. They just weren't happy on how it was received, so they're siding with the fucking masses and making fun of it. The kind of thing happens all the time with bands. Uh, But here you go. Here's one last blast of Tony Martin here to speak on what is to come. The fact that Ozzy is back was inevitable, I think. Uh, I always said to Tony, especially in the second half of my 10 years with the band, I also used to say to to Tony, if you're um, planning on doing the Ozzy reunion thing, just let me know because I need to know where I'm going to go in the future, do you know what I mean? I've got to make plans for you know musical direction for myself. So uh, I just wanted to know if that's what they were doing, um, so I could set myself up, you know, with something else. But they never did. They always denied it, and they said, "No, no, 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 it's just rumors, rumors, rumors." And um, of course, it wasn't. <laughs> so um, I think the other thing was inevitable. Um, how do I feel about it? it well, uh, it's a shame in some ways. I mean, if it was about money then, um, you know, they could be earning more money by having my stuff back there as well. So it's not just me that they're stopping from earning money. They're stopping earning money themselves by not having all those albums out. But um, I think it's more to do with politics. And uh, they, uh, the Sharons and the stuff of this world, don't regard me as a genuine member of Black Sabbath. I don't think they like that I was there. I don't know what kind of threat I could possibly be, to be honest. Um, but, you know... It's it's taken it seems to be taken that way, and um, I, I can't change the course of it. It's, it's not within my power to change it. As hinted at there, and as I have hinted at a fucking billion times already, we get a full blown reunion of the Aussie era Sabs shortly, and that's no secret. And Neil Murray wasn't going to stick around for another album if Cozy wasn't there. So really, it's time to kiss that rainbow goodbye. <laughs> a great run, lads. I raise a toast to you, Neil Murray. Tony the Cat Martin, cozy motherfucking pal. So cheers to all those amazing lads. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this really is the beginning of the end, folks. Big moment for the podcast. Hopefully I was fair on their works. I know that personally it was very hit and miss for my taste, but boy, do I appreciate all of it. If you sleep on the Martin era of Black Sabbath, you're a damn fool. I actually made a quick fire kind of top 10 list here too. Just my favorites from the Martin fronted Black Sabbath offerings. If you want a direct kind of curated hit, these are my highlights and not necessarily my favorites, but a good cross section of what was brought by them. So I have The Shining, Eternal Idol, Valhalla, or the whole fucking Viking trilogy of Time Permits You, Anomande, Born to Lose, Nightwing, Psychophobia, Jerusalem, The Sabbath Stones, and from today, the ultimate swan song. This has to be in there. Kiss of Death. 
at least listen to that batch of fucking 10 songs and then report back to me about what you think of the Tony Martin era Sabbath. I think it's great stuff. I was very happy to go through all of it. You know what? It feels like a completed work to me. Like, I don't need a new offering from Martin and Iommi in 2020 or some shit. I don't feel cheated or like they overstayed their welcome. So before I close this episode down here, I'll also mention briefly what Tony Iommi gets up to next. Without the record obligations, he feels free to kind of make music on his own terms again. So right after completing those Asian dates that we mentioned in December of 1995, Tony puts Black Sabbath on official hiatus, and he begins work on a solo album in 1996 with former Black Sabbath vocalist Glenn Hughes. That's right. Fucking Hughesy's back in Sabbath. (laughs) Well, no. Glenn had cleaned up his act, and he was in top-notch form this round with Iommi. I urge you to check it out. The initial 1996 sessions were Iommi on guitar, Glenn Hughes on bass and vocals, and former Judas Priest and trapeze drummer, the th- certified fucking shitbag that is David Holland. Now, the album was not officially released in 96 following its completion, and I think that was in order to avoid it counting as the last Sabbath record for IRS because it would have been before Sabbath Stones was released. Although it did eventually get bootlegged around that time, and it is kind of creatively known as the eighth star. Now, you know me and my seventh star dislike, but this batch of songs, officially known as the 1996 DEP sessions, they're fucking great. Hughes is in full-on redemption mode, playing the shit out of the bass, and his vocals are top-notch. He's really just fucking paying Iommi back for the shit that he put him through on the seventh star tour. I urge you all to check out this fucking album and the Fused album that he does in the fucking 2004 or something. These guys are great together. Great chemistry. I'd actually like to see another Hughes-Iomi fucking collaboration before either of them hang it up. Because I feel like they're still at that level where they could put out something fucking amazing without it feeling like a rehash. Seriously, just go listen to what they do. And the DEP sessions were actually officially released in 2004 with Holland's drums re-recorded by session drummer Jimmy Copley. As Holland had since been revealed as a serious sex offender. So fuck using his shit on the official release. Iommi also beefed up his guitar parts, re-recorded a bunch of it, remixed the whole fucking thing. It sounds amazing. Definitely listen to the 2004 version of the 1996 DEP sessions. The original tracks are great too, but it is bootleg material, so it's not well mixed. So, although Sabbath was officially on hiatus, Iommi and Hughes were back together too. The Seven Star reunion happened. I told you, once you're in the Sabs, you're in the Sabs for life. And it's all fucking reunions from now on. But we'll leave it there for today. We're on the home stretch. The end is in sight. As always, get in touch with me on the Twitter at SabbathBloodyPC or SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. Bog blast all of you.